So we had a case of a, a veteran, this guy who'd served over a decade in the military, and he was suffering from really severe and chronic post-traumatic stress disorder based on his military service. And as you know, when someone suffers from PTSD, sometimes in, in disagreements, they can have a very different reaction than a person who's not suffering from that condition. So he'd gotten into a disagreement with his landlord. The landlord had called the police. He'd gotten arrested. He was sitting in jail when we met him. The prosecutor had no idea about any of his background. He was just charged with a crime. And the prosecutor probably wouldn't have known about what was really going on with him had our advocate not had the time to sit with him, find out all about his military service, gather the records of it, find out about his PTSD diagnosis, pull those together, and bring that information to the prosecutor, who agreed to let him out of jail if he would have a place to go. So that was the next hurdle. This client on his own could not have arranged for housing from a jail cell. It's almost impossible to really do a, a good re-entry plan when you're sitting in a cell. So our advocate um, called a center for homeless veterans who turned him down. She refused to take no for an answer and she worked for uh, ages to convince them. She worked her way all the way up to the executive director of the center for homeless veterans, um, finally convincing the executive director to let the client in the next day and then took that agreement back to the prosecutor. Um, the prosecutor wouldn't agree without securing transportation for the client. So in fact, our advocate broke the rules a little. We don't usually drive clients, but she promised to personally drive the client from the jail to the center. And so because of her, a veteran who would otherwise have sat in jail until he took a guilty plea was able to get a favorable disposition, freedom, a new home, and a network of resources specifically tailored to veterans with special needs like his. And uh, just to describe the way it would have been had it not been for you, um, he would have been sitting there, as you, as you just said. Um, so in these cases, there must be tons of cases like that. Where there are hundreds, if not thousands at this point. Even though the judge says, yeah, you can go, but, oh, I don't have a home, I don't have a family. You right. know, in this case, so, so the... Um, there must be knowledge. I mean, the judge, judges must understand that these people cannot do that. So why do they come up with judgments like this? You know, it's really funny. I don't, I think there there are really good judges who understand the sheer level of difficulty that, their, that, that our clients are facing. But there's also so much disconnect between the perspective of judges and the, and the realities that people are facing on the ground. I remember when I was a public defender in the Bronx, I appeared in front of a judge. Um, Many of my clients, when I would go through like their financial disclosures, I would see, you know, that their net income was zero dollars or a hundred dollars a month or something, you know, really people living in extreme, extreme poverty. And I remember appearing in front of this judge on a case very much like the one that I described to you just now and asking for this person to be released because if he wasn't released, he was going to have a disruption in his medical treatment that would have really, really damaged his health in the long term. And he was only arrested on a misdemeanor. And there's no world in which a misdemeanor should result in a lifelong health consequence. And the judge set $500 bail for a, a man who was street homeless and had no income. And, and I remember saying, Your Honor, I, I, I know you think you're setting a low bail, but to this man, $500 may as well be a million dollars. And she goes, oh, counsel, it's only $500. <laughs> in this accent? <laughs> yeah, this is the Bronx. 
Um, the, the dismissiveness and the refusal to acknowledge that $500 is a lot of money was shocking to me. I mean, this is a woman who's in her 60s, who lived a full life, you know, like who should understand that for some people, $500 is impossible. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that she just brushed it away reminded me that there are many, many people who rise to positions of judicial power who have forgotten the impossibility of, of these issues when living in poverty. Or maybe who never knew in the first place, I don't know. And it's strange because she probably has dealt with a lot of these cases before. Oh, thousands. She's sitting up there setting bail on cases all the time. Um, so do you think there, there needs to be a little bit, of, there need to be seminars, I guess, for judges to kind of get them back to reality? The optimist in me would, there, there's a there's a, a part of my heart that worries that um, we we as a society have so dehumanized people that we put in cages that no amount of education is going to fix it. I mean, when I look right now at the at the pandemic we're facing, we as advocates have been telling governors and sheriffs and lawmakers that the only way to prevent a massive loss of life inside prisons and jails is to release huge numbers of people, specifically the lowest risk people, elderly people, people who are in very fragile health, mm -hmm. people who are only in misdemeanors, people who are set to be released within the next few weeks anyway, yeah. people whose crime doesn't involve any allegation of hurting anybody, people who are only in on technical violations of probation and parole, like all of these people should have been released immediately in order to stave off a public health crisis, because as you know, in a jail, people are living two or four to a cell, arms reach from another person with no soap and no hand sanitizer and no control over who they're in contact with. So there was there were weeks upon weeks upon weeks of the, some of the smartest people in the country telling states and counties that they needed to urgently drop their jail and prison populations. And they did almost nothing. A few hundred people released here and there, a lengthy process. Oh, we're thinking about it. We're going through the list of people now. And what we've seen is that as of today, um, the Cook County Jail in Chicago is not just the, the single biggest hotbed of infection in the US, it's the single biggest source of infections. So infections that start in the jail are of course, coming out in the community because people come and go, people work there, people get released. Um, to me, the only explanation for the failure to act with the requisite level of urgency, the urgency that we've seen applied to cruise ships and military vessels, um, is that leaders don't value the lives of people in cages. And I think that devaluation infects every single aspect of our system. Maybe the American system is too focused on penalizing as opposed to uh, mm -hmm. restoring. Yeah, we act on anger. So right. the way we react to wrongdoing has much more to do with what makes people feel better when they're mad at someone yeah. and what will actually make the situation better. There is no world in which anyone will ever um, <laughs> argue for the point that being locked up in a jail cell improves a person's character. Like nobody gets better in, in prison. Um, Unless you're in Sweden. Maybe. Yeah, no, but there, there's, I mean, I, I personally know some humans who have, undergone amazing transformation because they are amazing humans. If we had a system that was built to make society safer, 
instead of just being mean to people we're mad at, we would have a completely different system that would confine almost no one and provide massive opportunity, education, and support for people who are screwing up. Looking at your website, I noticed that you operate in three uh, places. Is that is that it, Delaware? Pre-pandemic, we were planning a big expansion. Um, we are now, um, we're going to be operating at the end of this year in California, Delaware, Texas, and Louisiana. We're opening a new site in New Orleans. That's great. So you're not in New York anymore? We're not really needed in New York. The, the public defender agencies in New York are fantastic and do a great job of providing these kinds of stabilizing services in large part due to the leadership of Bronx Defenders, um, my alma mater, <laughs> um, and then other organizations who've also done great, great stuff supporting their clients. So we're not needed there. So you're kind of optimizing that model and bringing it to places that does not, uh, it, does not it doesn't exist. Yeah, we're expanding on the model. We're, we're, we're trying to create advocates who can do more. And we're also trying to create a system where public defenders offices who are not well resourced in the way that New York defenders are resourced can still provide robust services, even if they lack funding. But are there groups that are opposed? What Nobody's opposed. I, we actually expected a lot of opposition from prosecutors, um, but prosecutors, as it turns out, really love getting more robust information about the people they're dealing with. So when we bring them information about a defendant, um, they're very happy to be able to make more nuanced choices in their own work. So actually, <laughs> we didn't get any pushback. I think the single biggest obstacle for us is um, convincing states and counties that it's really smart to fund life stabilizing work. And that if you stabilize the people who are in trouble, those people will be in trouble less and we will save you money down the line. Um, right. It's also a little complicated. What's that? Are there metrics for you to make that argument? Yes. Um, we're So we're slowly, we've only been in service since 2018, but we're already able to show um, the sheer numbers of people who we've connected with jobs and mental health treatment and housing and all of these things that we collectively understand to be beneficial and make a person less likely to recidivate. We, we're not focused on recidivism numbers. First of all, it hasn't been enough time, but second of all, those numbers can be really tricky in a heavily policed jurisdiction. So for example, if you do a great job getting someone released and finding them housing in a job, they may be more likely to get arrested on, say, being in the park after dark or a low-level ticket offense merely because they are out and present on the street. So we haven't delved into recidivism numbers mostly because we're not quite sure how to do it in a way that reflects actual danger. Uh, how much does that person cost the state versus... <laughs> How much it, you would save them if you uh, disengage them from that cycle? So we, it, it, it's different state by state. Um, I think the numbers that I, are most uh, responsive to your question are a small study that we did of about 68 of our felony mitigation cases. Those are felony cases where we brought really valuable information to prosecutors and judges about the person's background and also their plan if they were given another chance. We helped them formulate a plan and we put that plan on paper and we brought it to the decision makers. In those cases, we saved those 68 people looking at the difference of what their offer was from the prosecutor before we got involved to looking at the outcome we got after we were involved. We reduced the number of years those people would have spent behind bars by a cumulative 23.4 years. 
which is over a million dollars in savings to the jurisdictions who would have had to pay to incarcerate and, and, and feed and house people for, for decades. So it, it cost us about five to $10 to eliminate one day of jail and one day of jail in that jurisdiction costs about $130. So we're saving a lot of money. <laughs> I think the question I get a lot that I think is valuable is, is whether this is scalable. Cause I think sometimes our, our, um, our services sound really deluxe because they are, they're designed to, to make people feel honored and listened to and fought for. Um, but the truth is we found, we, we deliberately tested this program in really different jurisdictions. California and Delaware could not be more different and Texas couldn't be more different from the other two. So we went to places where we could really find out, we could, we could road test this thing. And what we found is that this is so easily tailored to the individual jurisdictions we serve and it works so well, even in different environments and different stages of the criminal process, that we're very excited at the idea of this being the next Teach for America. Mm -hmm.